This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Justice Department is struggling to contain the fallout over revelations that the Trump administration issued secret subpoenas for communications metadata of at least two House Democrats, members of the news media, and then White House counsel Don McGahn. Former Attorney General Jeff Sessions and former Attorney General William Barr claimed they didn't know about the subpoenas. On CNN State of the Union, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that's beyond belief. So we will have to have them come under oath to testify about that. Pelosi said that drops Donald Trump below even Richard Nixon in terms of reprehensible presidential behavior. Richard Nixon had an enemies list. This is about uh, undermining the rule of law. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced today that he's ordered a review to evaluate and toughen the department's existing policies and procedures for obtaining records from lawmakers or their staff. Joining me is William Banks, a professor at Syracuse Law School. The Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, has said that what the Justice Department did here with these subpoenas is worse than Watergate. Do you agree with that? It's too early to say, June, it's possible that this is a big scandal, but there's so many things we don't know about the subpoenas, about what the investigation was concerning, whether there were multiple investigations going on. It seems like this is all connected to leak investigations, but leak investigations that are prompted by politics more than concerns about national security, for example. If there's a pattern here in what we've been able to learn so far, it's that the supposed leakers or those whose records were subpoenaed and obtained were political opponents of Donald Trump, so that the White House was apparently enlisting the Justice Department to do its political sniping and warfare rather than simply asking it to enforce the law. If that's the case, I think that's what Speaker Pelosi is driving at. That's bad. It's very bad. But of course, at the same time, we don't have strict legal limits on what the Justice Department's capabilities of exercising the subpoena power are, particularly with respect to members of Congress or their staff. Well, in order to trigger a Justice Department leak investigation, is it usually a leak of classified material that's at issue? Yes, and that's important, I think, to say because, you know, so was there classified material that was leaked, perhaps concerning uh, the Russia investigation, perhaps concerning what Mueller was looking into? Uh, there are a number of other possibilities, certainly the, the media uh, subpoenas that were revealed about a week ago, the Times, CNN, the Washington Post, those have the, the look of the kinds of leak investigations that were undergoing even during the Obama administration. But these, you know, bringing in members of Congress, their staff, members of their families, that's, uh, that's stepping in a new direction. Yeah, Attorney General Merrick Garland said that these seizures were done under a set of policies that have existed for decades. But that doesn't mean it didn't cross the line. That's right. But again, you know, what we're talking about here probably are violations of longstanding norms of good conduct in government and separation of powers principles that the executive branch doesn't intrude into affairs of Congress, but they're not 
written laws. They're not reduced to statute. They're not even reduced to, to administrative regulation. They're not part of the Constitution as such. But it's longstanding norms that we never had to worry about in the past until the last five years or so. Would a judge have to approve these subpoenas? Yes. So so they're probably connected to leak investigations, and that's the justification for for exercising subpoenas. And then also, by the way, the the gag orders telling them not to, telling the companies, the companies not to reveal that the records have been taken. Trump's first attorney general, Jeff Sessions, his second attorney general, William Barr, and former deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, claim to have no knowledge of this. Could an investigation like this be going on without the knowledge of the attorney general? Not if they're doing their jobs. One of them is either telling a lie or weren't paying attention to what their subordinates were doing. There's another official whose testimony is going to be sought here, Mr. John Demers, who is head of the National Security Division at the Department of Justice. He announced stepping down as of next week. This was a a planned departure, not hastened, I think, by these events. But Demers was another official head of NSD, National Security Division, who could have authorized the subpoenas. But in any case, Rosenstein should have known or approved and the attorney general. This was not everyday business in the Department of Justice. They also seize the records of journalists. That seems to cause a particular problem when they're seizing journalist records. In classified leak investigations, have journalist records been seized before? Only rarely. And again, you know, this this is what caused, I think, President Biden to react off the cuff the other day, that he thought it was a terrible uh, policy and that it would never, ever happen again. I think it's something like that. He said, now, of course, Attorney General Garland and and his deputy are going to be busy trying to construct policy to put his words into practice. But you may remember that in the Obama administration, Attorney General Holder drafted a Justice Department policy that made it easier to go after journalists in leak investigations. And it was it was exercised with some vigor a number of times, more often in the Obama administration than in the Republican administrations that had preceded it. Former White House counsel Don McGahn, his records were also subpoenaed. Does that go way beyond to have a a sitting White House counsel's records subpoenaed? It's quite bizarre to have an investigation of your own lawyer um, about which, again, he's the the provider, Apple, I believe it was, is gagged from telling him that his records have been taken, the records of his family. Uh, there are a few possibilities there. You know, McGann, McGann was working on a lot of things uh, at that period, including uh, investigations that, that were part of the Mueller work, uh, investigations uh, related to Paul Manafort's criminal cases, uh, as well as the Russia investigation. So, uh, and by that time, I think in 2018, uh, McGann and President Trump were on the outs. So it, it may be that it was just kind of some vindictive. Uh, decision by the president to try to dig up dirt on Don McGahn, which is quite ridiculous. I've heard some Republicans say, well, look at the searches of Rudolph Giuliani, who was the president's lawyer. Is that analogous to what was done to Don McGahn? No, I don't think so. There's been no allegation that Mr. McGahn violated the law in any way. So they're interested to know who he was talking to not 
whether he engaged in a law violation. That's certainly not the case with Jawan, and quite the contrary. The Justice Department Inspector General is going to investigate this, but there are senators who want to investigate this on the Judiciary Committee, but they may not have, they probably won't have the Republican vote that they need in order to do that. Is it sufficient for the Justice Department Inspector General to investigate this, do you think? I have a lot of confidence in Mr. Horowitz. As you know, he's done yeoman's work over the years in trying to hold up the integrity of the IG as an institution in the Department of Justice. We all know that inspectors general have been under a tremendous assault and pressure uh, during the Trump administration, firings and the the like. And Horowitz is hung tough. Uh, And he's hung tough even though he's had to deal with uh, Bill Barr and and Jeff Sessions. And I think he'll have, of course, a much more cooperative attorney general now in Mary Carlin. But uh, he's independent. He has a staff. He has the resources to dig and get what he needs. He'll be deliberate about it. And I don't think anyone will question his integrity or his independence of partisan uh, politics. I want to get your take on the way Garland is handling some Trump issues. You know, the Justice Department seems to be all in for protecting whoever the president was. For example, they're still defending Trump in the defamation lawsuit. They've been defending him, even releasing his tax record, the tax records to Congress at this stage. And now they seem to be defending what happened here. Is there too much defense of the prior administration, all for perhaps the idea that, you know, this isn't a political justice department? Well, I don't think it is too much. I think it, it sets uh, an example uh, of nonpartisanship, uh, of bringing the Justice Department back to the straight and narrow uh, posture that it's always been supposed to have and that it practiced for the most part over its entire institutional history. So it, it, it looks a little silly sometimes, and, and uh, there are probably you know, lawyers whose eyes are rolling in the back <laughs> of their head doing some of this work, but I think it's got to be done. Thanks, Bill. That's William Banks of Syracuse Law School. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The race to be Manhattan's next top prosecutor is taking place amid a crime surge that has seen murders up more than 17% so far this year. But at a candidate forum earlier this year, five of the eight Democratic hopefuls said they supported reducing police funding and some even called for cutting back the prosecutor's office. Joining me is Patricia Hurtado, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. In the DA's race in Manhattan, there are two seemingly conflicting forces at work. That's the surge in crime in New York and the racial justice movement. Are candidates fighting both those? It seems like what they're doing is they're straddling the two issues in the best way, basically, their campaigns want to address it. So some of the more liberal, I guess I would call them more progressive candidates uh, who are more for disabling or dismantling the existing criminal justice system because they find there's there's too much prejudice or there's too much heavy-handed uh, prosecutions of brown and black people. So they are having to address that they're being asked to. And some of them are more 
moderate and they are basically saying crime is bad. So we need to not dismantle the system. We need to really just continue doing our jobs if we're elected and prosecute crime. The Trump investigation is what's been driving news about the Manhattan DA's office for years now. But that doesn't seem to be an issue in the campaign. Well, some of the candidates have said that it would be improper for them to talk about something they know nothing about. I mean, a criminal grand jury is supposed to operate in secrecy, right? So they've been calling witnesses, and any candidate is not privy to what's going on in the grand jury. And if they make comments now ahead of, you know, say, for example, one of them said Trump deserves to be prosecuted or indicted, that would automatically make them fodder and make them a target for if there is a case later down the road and they get elected, that candidate could be uh, attacked by Trump's lawyers as saying this person has a vendetta against us and it's a wrongful prosecution. So most of them are not. They're tiptoeing around the subject in in the best way they can. But it is a huge, it will be, if it happens, the DA who will get elected for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office uh, to replace Cy Vance, who's the current DA, will have a huge job on their hands if that happens. Some people are pointing out, if you can imagine a case that's so high profile like this, which really need strong leadership at the top of the helm to withstand all the buffeting of criticism that Trump's lawyers could heap upon the prosecutors, for all kinds of reasons, look at the trouble, you know, the amount of litigation and fighting and fighting subpoenas uh, we can see from what Trump has already done in other cases. He took cases and appeals on his taxes all the way to the Supreme Court twice. So a DA with not that much experience might be at a disadvantage compared to someone who can handle the political pressure that's brought to bear by Trump and his lawyers, as well as think of the media criticism from both the right and the left of his despair and all the criticism, a DA will have to be very strong to withstand and and weather this storm of a a Trump trial if it happens. Something that seems surprising to me, because you're in New York City here, is there no polling being done, no independent polling? I guess the thing is, is they are calling, uh, there's some just very small polls of trying to reach out to people on the phone. It seems to me because of the pandemic, they're not walking around, talking to people, knocking on doors because, you know, there still are social distancing requirements and putting people at harm and walking up to strangers. I mean, there's more campaigning we've seen in the last month and a half or so of candidates going out to farmers markets, but the polling, it it seems to be impaired terribly by the the pandemic. And so it's almost like these tiny little fragments of checks of like questioning 500 people or 800 people, you know, of the thousands that could vote in the election or eligible to vote. Let's just take each of the candidates and talk a little bit about each. We're going to do it in alphabetical order, as you did in your story. There's Tahani Uh Abushi, who sounds like she wants the office to be more like a social work office than a prosecuting office. Yes, she's one of the more progressive candidates. She's very popular with millennials. Uh, She has strongly criticized the basic process of the system, saying that it's unfair, and she has called for all kinds of actions, you know, uh, 
basically going after the roots of crime, she said, and she won't prosecute, you know, crimes that she say are like sex workers, uh, people theft of robberies. She's won the endorsement of Bernie Sanders. Um, but, you know, she definitely wants to basically have the office go in a different direction and not prosecute crimes that many of us would see as a typical crime like bear beating or turnstile jumping or crimes by youngsters, but they are like robberies, for example. And she says she'll shrink the district attorney's office, and there are at least two dozen crimes that she won't prosecute. The Manhattan district attorney's office handles all kinds of cases, if you can imagine. I mean, they handle everything from, you know, purse snatching on the subway in Manhattan to, you know, major murders. But murders are a small fraction of what the DA's office prosecutes. And with police arrest for, some have pointed out that if the police are arresting people, then they get to the district attorney's office to assess what kind of crime they will do. If I'm not mistaken, I believe Abushi was the one that said it at a debate that it's called the Early Case Assessment Bureau. And she was arguing that it should not be done to assess what kind of crimes to prosecute. It should be done instead. She would reassign prosecutors to assess what the police role was and then to police wrongdoing rather than to investigate the actual crime. So it'll be interesting if someone like Tahani wins, what's going to happen, you know, this dichotomy between the police officers arresting people, getting brought in to the precinct, the DA assessing what kind of case they would bring, and then maybe the DA would just say, hey, we don't believe in these kinds of crimes anymore. So police are arresting, but the people arrested aren't going to get prosecuted and let go. Now, Alvin Bragg, veteran state and federal prosecutor. Tell us about him. He has an interesting background. He has worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District with the likes of Preet Bharara, who's endorsed him. He handled cases there, and then he went on to work for Eric Schneiderman as the New York Attorney General and worked as a top deputy to him. Um, He's a, a progressive. Many times he cites how he, as a black man, has been a victim of wrongdoing by police, and he's had guns pointed to his head, both by police and perpetrators. So he he has portrayed himself as the kind of person that New Yorkers need because he would really get what the prior generations of Manhattan district attorneys don't understand what it's like to be a black man, a minority in society. He got the New York Times endorsement. How important is that? Probably extraordinarily important, and um, it's hard to say. That it, this is the strange thing: is there's so many candidates. In fact, there's not just eight Democrats, but a Republican in the in the race as well. And it's going to be interesting. Yes, Democrats outnumber, I think, ten to one Republicans in Manhattan, and Manhattan tends to vote liberally. But it's unclear how many people will actually come out and vote for the Manhattan District Attorney's race. So the endorsement of the New York Times for some people that maybe just want a little bit of an imprimatur of somebody, you know, what is the New York Times telling me I should do? Oh, yes, I I believe in their philosophy and their politics. I'm going to vote for this person. So it could be a a good weight. Um, Of course, the New York Times uh, audience tracks a little, you know, more liberally and possibly more upscale, according to some. 
So I guess for those kinds of voters that pay attention to the New York Times, it's meaningful. Liz Crotty, who's a veteran of the Manhattan DA's office herself. Yes, and she has um, basically the most centrist of all the Democrats. She's hardly what you would call a a right-wing person. She's a very moderate, and she is totally for law and order. She has won the endorsement of police unions and important endorsements from like the PBA, the New York City Police Benevolent Association. Um, She believes there are many crimes that her competitors, the other candidates, are saying they will not prosecute. She said and repeatedly that she doesn't believe prosecutors need to declare, I will never prosecute X crime because you might find yourself with a very important case and you've already declared you're never prosecuting it. So it kind of puts you in a box and you can't do it. So she believes that the DA is supposed to enforce the law and that's what she said she's going to do. So Diane Florence, another veteran of the Manhattan DA's office. Yeah, she's won the backing of lots of unions, and her reputation has been she was headed a unit that was prosecuting certain kinds of crimes that had to do with um, building enforcement. And she's pointed to her background doing these kinds of cases that she can handle complex cases. She's gone up against very, very complicated, financially complicated with multi-defendant cases and still been able to prosecute the cases. And she was at the in the office for like 20 years. She is on the more uh, centrist. She's not as, as progressive saying, I will defund the police. I will never prosecute certain crimes. She's been a more moderate person. Now, Thomas Kenneth is the only Republican in the race. Yeah, and he's um, more in the category of, I'm the DA, I'm supposed to enforce the law, and that's what I will do. He is a Republican, however, which may be, uh, there aren't as many registered Republicans in Manhattan. So it depends on how he tracks with voters and how his message is received. He is a former JAG prosecutor for the government, and he's a former veteran of the Army. So he has done, you know, military, Iraq war veteran. He has basically espoused a, look, my job as a DA is to enforce the law. And he is very critical of the more progressive candidates on the far left and the DA's race on the Democratic side. Lucy Lang is another veteran Manhattan DA, but she's also a reform candidate. How's that working? She's actually espousing both ideas that she can reform within, within, and she has done it in the past. She's talked about, she's a former Manhattan DA under Cy Vance. She was the top-ranking DA there. She handled homicides and other kinds of complex gang cases. And she has said that she has come up with systematic ways to address problems. So she came up with an initiative in the office that later on ended up being, um, it's called the Institute for Innovation at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. So she's pointing out, look, I was in the system and I already came up with these progressive ideas and this is what the office can do. So it's her mantra appears to be change from within and I can be progressive as well as still do the job. Eliza Orleans, she's a longtime public defender, but a lot of people know her as a reality show contestant. Yeah, I mean, it's unclear how many of her Twitter followers from the reality TV show. She was in Survivor, and 
if any of them are actual New York vote Manhattan voters. Um, very popular, a lot of social media Q profile. And she is also a very, one of the more progressive candidates that's being very critical of the entire criminal justice system. And there's Dan Court, who's a state assemblyman. Dan Court is, is a Manhattan assemblyman for the state assembly. He's been a defense lawyer, but his work in the system has been as a, as a civil lawyer and a criminal lawyer. So he did personal injury work for civil litigation, and he did pro bono uh, low-income tenants in his facing eviction. He's been critical of the system, that it's out of control, uh, and there's too many minorities getting unfairly prosecuted by the system. So he's on the the spectrum of the more uh, progressive candidates running who want to see systemic change in the system. They're not happy with the way it is right now, and they would like to see some massive overhaul. Last, but the most well-funded, is Tali Farhadian Weinstein, a former federal prosecutor whose husband is a hedge fund manager. She has quite the resume, wrote Scholar, you know, she has a story as an immigrant, like Tani Abushi. She and her family fled Iran, she says, um, came here, and she clerked for Sandra Day O'Connor and worked for Merrick Garland when he was a federal appellate court judge. She worked as special counsel to then Attorney General Eric Holder and then for Loretta Lynch, who took over. And then she went to the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's Office, where she handled crimes, uh, and then went to go work as special counsel to Eric Gonzalez, the Brooklyn District Attorney, where she worked on a reviewing cases to see any of their wrongful prosecutions. So she's basically also straddling this. Her points are that she has the experience, the expertise, and the know-how of how the federal system works, but she also has this great resume, and she's worked for a district attorney who is also progressive. The New York Daily News endorsed her. From my personal experience, I've gotten more flyers from her than any other candidate. She has lots of TV ads. Hasn't she outspent every other candidate in the race? The latest numbers, according to the Daily News and the city website, she's put in recently $8 million, an infusion of her own money of $8 million into her campaign. That goes way past the most raised by any other candidate, which I believe tops at $2 million. Thanks so much, Patty. That's Patricia Hurtado, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Bloomberg.